3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, 8.55am on your dial or perhaps you're listening to... 3cr.org.au and streaming live through the website. My name is Jackson. I am in the studio with James. Good morning. Good morning, Jackson. Morning, everybody listening. It's been a pretty cold, um, pretty bleak weekend for a lot of people and for a number of reasons. Um, I hope you've all stayed warm by open fires or by gas heaters or whatever you'd use to keep warm, maybe just wrapped in a doona, but it's been brutally cold. I dislike it. How do you go in the cold weather? Yeah, certainly. Um, yesterday was a pretty horrible day with the um, rain just pouring through. And I don't know, yeah, I guess I, I work in the city at night time often and... One thing, especially being prevalent over the last couple of years, is a huge increase in people sleeping out on the streets, and it's a terrible sort of time to be um, having to go through that as well. Yeah. We're lucky if we do have those um, creature comforts you mentioned to keep us warm. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, on the show today, we are having, um, in solidarity with the horrendous... Um, murder and rape of Eurydice Dixon last week, we thought it would be valuable to have a conversation about men's violence uh, more broadly today, um, which will begin in at about quarter past seven this morning. We've got a number of guests coming into the studio um, to talk with us about these issues because neither James nor I are experts in these matters and we really wanted to get some people in from various sectors to talk about a problem that just continues to present itself um, here in Melbourne and, and all around the world. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're going to have um, V James, who's a um, domestic and family violence advocate and social worker in, uh, Gemma Carafala, who some of our listeners may be familiar with from uh, Done by Law, 3CR program here. Um, she's a lawyer with um, Legal Aid. She's going to come in and chat with us as well, and also... Sue Bolton, who's the uh, Socialist Alliance councillor for City of Moreland. Um, sh- I mean, it's, the um, the crimes happen very close to the borders of um, the municipality that Sue looks after, and she's obviously been a long-term campaigner for uh, women's rights and safety and interconnected issues such as these. So they'll all be joining us in the studio from 7.15. Um, after we've had a bit of a roundtable discussion, we're also going to be joined on the phone by Margarita Windi- uh, Windich, um, who she's a regular Greenleaf Weekly contributor. She's also a sexual assault counsellor and she teaches domestic and family violence prevention at Victoria University, so it'll be really interesting to hear from her. And we've also got Lizzie O'Shea, who's a, a lawyer, an author and an activist and has done quite a bit of work around um, human rights and social justice in these spaces. 
And then at the end of the whole chat, we'll be speaking to Jessamy Gleeson, who's one of the organisers of the Reclaim Princess Park Vigil, which has been getting a lot of coverage um, on social media and the news, which is on this evening or this afternoon. So we encourage everyone to get down there and show solidarity with the family um, of Eurydice Dixon. Yeah, I think, I guess, um, just to add to that, I think that we, um, you know, I guess we've put some work over the last few days to kind of really think about how best to approach the show and to try to dedicate a fair bit of time to going through some of the issues. Um, and, yeah, the, I guess if there are people, particularly um, Eurydice and her family, are really well known to the 3CR community and, you know, perhaps that over the, the next um, hour or so that... It might be, um, you know, you might not feel up to having this conversation or hearing this conversation at the moment. And, you know, that's perfectly um, understandable. And, you know, maybe I'll have to listen back at another time or, or, or not. And um, and I guess, yeah, just to add further to what Jackson was saying, that we, we've we tried to approach this in, um, I guess, the best way that we kind of know how. And um, we will, you know, already acknowledge that there'll probably be some mistakes in the way that we kind of go about it, but um, we think it's a really important conversation to have and it's really important that I think men in particular are trying to do the work to um, try to understand our own behaviour and the kind of behaviour that leads to the kind of things that we are seeing um, really publicly at the moment. So whatever you know that can look like, I think, for different people, but... You know, engaging in things, I think, yourself as well and not just expecting that um, women are going to provide the, those answers for you. So. Mm. Uh, and if anything across the morning's discussion does, um, you know, uh, touch a nerve with you or, you know, leave you feeling a little rattled, um, there is definitely numbers you can call um, uh, 1-800-RESPECT, which is 1-800-737-732 is a support line to contact um, uh, for sexual assault and family violence counselling service, so uh, that might be worth. Um, we'll read that out a couple of times throughout the morning. Um, we also have after eight o'clock. We have uh, uh, sorry at ten to eight. We'll have uh, over the wall uh, our regular programming about social services and um, the barriers uh, that stand between those who use social services. Um, uh, this week. Um, Duncan is talking with Mark O'Brien from Tenancy Victoria uh, about the housing bubble, um, how we got here and who's getting burnt by the overheated market. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would be really great. We had Mark on um, last week as well, so we yeah. need to kind of continue that discussion. Um, and then at 8 o'clock we've got um, a host of a, a new podcast, Dr. Karen Debbie Cradle. He's going to be talking... Um, about she's a, a um, coming in, in in her character is going to be talking about um, counselling and I guess like you know the kind of um, couples counselling and things that kind of go around that. So we'll we'll get some more details um, later on I guess around those two things. But yeah, hmm. quite a full show it is. So stay tuned. We'll just have um, a brief amount of alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't.
Uh, so this morning, my eye was caught by a study from independentaustralia.net that says that uh, Australians with left-wing political leanings, of which many of our listeners would have, are apparently more anxious about expressing their opinions online than those with right-wing leanings. There's been a study done by the University of Canberra uh, that suggests two-thirds of Australians said uh, they are careful about expressing their political views online because it could make their colleagues or acquaintances think differently about them. Uh, They were also worried about sharing opinions with friends and family. That was 58% and, you know, general authorities like their bosses and whatnot. And I just thought this this kind of information runs counter to a lot of the uh, discussion that the online space has become this polarised echo chamber, you know. I think the idea that two-thirds of Australians uh, are, are feeling uncomfortable about sharing their views, um, perhaps it's a reflection of the kind of um, responses that you can garner online, but it seems more that people are unwilling to put their thoughts out there for fear of censure or rebuke. Well, I think, yeah, th- there's kind of... There's different types of um, responses, isn't there? I mean, I think that... Well, you know, we might be concerned with what a response will be from potential, you know, employer or, um, you know, I think that kind of response is concerning. But I know, like, in um, Clementine Ford's book that, you know, she talks a lot about the kind of calling out that she does of um, people who send her, you know, really offensive kind of messages via social media and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, one one such case where she um, had posted the details to someone's workplace and there was a retribution for that. We kind of, we hear about those kind of things much more often um, and that that is kind of criticised in a sense. But we, yeah, I think that that's, it's a pretty interesting kind of study because this the mainstream is become so right-wing that, um, you know, they feel that they can get away with things, really. And we've seen, I think, you know, over the little while, you see more and more kind of... I mean, over the weekend, I saw people from university dressing up in um, Hitler costumes and, you know, we see blackface and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And people think that that's fine to post on social media or, you know, and all of the yeah. sexist comments that are privately messaged to people. And, and it kind of, you know, it runs from, yeah, university students all the way to our quote-unquote elite armed forces who Mm. have recently been exposed as um, flying Nazi regalia from some of their vehicles during training and during combat, I believe, as well. Mm. So, yeah, some of the revelations there. And, yeah, this this report is saying that um, perhaps because of that reflection of a slide towards, you know, pretty open xenophobic racist... um, views in the public space, you know, which has been, you know, has also seen a, a rise of openly fascist commentary from certain uh, sectors of society. I think they've just set up a private club here in Melbourne, actually, the, the UPF. Um, yeah, it, I guess it's unsurprising that um, Australians with uh, further right-wing uh, leaning ideas are less concerned about sharing their views online. I think it's something we, I think we talked about it last week is with Mark Latham, or was a week before, but where, you know, some of these people who have become these right wing, you know, either, you know, like fascist groups or even these right wing people like Latham or whatever that, um, you know, even Pauline Hanson and, um, Clive Palmer, they've become these kind of radicals in a sense because they're, 
they're doing things outside of what is the mm. mainstream kind of political thing or whatever. And, you know, it's a very disturbing sort of trend that what was once the, I guess, the terrain of lefties that the right is really taking over this space. And a lot of the way, like, the UBF organised and everything is very similar to how we do things. So it's... They've obviously been studying what we do and copying that and then making... And then and preempting what we're going to do. I think that, you know, seeing with those um, people that are coming over from England... Um, soon that they're already preempting what the left response is going to be and so it puts us in a difficult position of just fulfilling what they say yeah i agree i as i was mentioning last week this kind of co-opting of transgressive spaces or somehow the right owning radical spaces is deeply mm-hmm. concerning and unusual and just you know flies in the face of years of political history um, yeah, sort of presenting, presenting yourself as somehow, yeah, outside the norm or against the grain when really you're, uh, uh, expressing retrograde, um, exploitative, <laughs> segregated ideas. Yeah, he's pretty, um, pretty on the nose. Just before we finish up, I'll just mention one other thing that the, obviously the ABC cuts mm. is something that's been in the news and, article by uh, Mr. Andrew Bolt in the Herald Sun today. There's a really interesting quote. It says, ABC has four national TV stations, five national radio stations, an online newspaper, and the ABC could use all that firepower to destroy this weakened government in this election year. I'm glad that Andrew Bolt thinks that the ABC is still so powerful and is able to um, orchestrate that kind of change. But I, I guess for me that just shows that for the small amount of money that the government gives the ABC, that there's so much content that is being delivered out to people. And it's not, uh, you know, they don't have to pay for, you know, a subscription service or whatever to access this kind of information. Yeah, I just think it's important to acknowledge too that while the ABC is funded by the government, it is <coughs> a bit like, not, not the same as, but... A bit like 3CR, at least a platform free from the influence of corporate money, you know, which is such an incredible mechanism of control if you look at the connections between selling products in flags in flagship shows on Channel 7 or Channel 9 or Channel 10. You know, you look at shows like The Block or MasterChef and their whole model is built around expenditure for the people watching it, looking at what they're watching and then wanting to go out and emulate that behaviour or build that house or make that meal made of exotic ingredients. And I just think it, it, we, there's just always a need for... <clears throat> journalism that is solely about journalism about lifting the lid on things about telling stories and while the abc doesn't have as you've said the you know perhaps the teeth and the clout that it's had historically because of you know the last three to six years of cuts and you know the neoliberalism of the you know putting neoliberals on the board and you know these kind of efficiency gains they still do lift the lid uh, on some really remarkable stories and i think we should you know in the same way that our community is mobilised to support this station over the last two weeks, and we thank you so much for our donations uh, that have that have come so far. Uh, it's you know definitely get out and mobilise and talk to people about defending the ABC because to have the ABC privatised would be a terrible and large step along the way to an uncomfortable type of state to be living in. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. 
They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Located in the heart of Thornbury, the Islamic Museum of Australia showcases the cultural and artistic heritage of Australian Muslims. Don't miss our latest youth-based exhibition, Ways to be Muslim, and immerse yourself in a series of photographic portraits and unique personal narratives. This exhibition is hosted in partnership with Muslim Collective and the Victorian State Government and is showing until July 8th. Visit the museum website for more information. The Islamic Museum of Australia is a 3CR supporter. Twenty eighteen marks twenty years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net, a 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast here on 855 on your radio dial. Uh, now, this morning we are going to have an extended conversation about men's violence. Um, we were moved by, obviously, the horrendous murder and rape of Eurydice Dixon last week, and we thought it would be a valuable conversation to have. Um, I think it's an ongoing conversation. And we really want to acknowledge that Eurydice and her family are well-known and loved by the 3CR community and the wider activists and left-wing communities in Melbourne. People are obviously still grieving, and we want to make it clear that this discussion could be very difficult to hear, as we've mentioned earlier, and we want to mention again, and it will get into the specifics of violent acts. And if this is something you don't want to engage with right now, please tune out and you can catch the discussion at a later date. Um, there is some phone numbers you can call if you are um, feeling... Disturbed by what we're speaking about, um, you could call 1800RESPECT, which is 1800-737-732, uh, which is a support line to contact, which is the Sexual Assault and Family Violence Counselling Service. Now, a lot of people, a lot of listeners, a lot of people out there will have been noticing that the Me Too movement has been drawing a lot of public attention to men's sexual violence in the workplace, uh, but the death of Eurydice reminds us that male violence takes place in many spaces, According to Our Watch, uh, a woman in Australia dies every week at the hands of a known man. 
And one in three women have experienced physical violence. 80% of women aged between 18 and 24, which was Eurydice's age, have experienced street violence by men in the past year. So joining us to talk about uh, these issues and, and, and the wider issues of men's violence, we have Fee James, who is a family violence advocate. Good morning, Fee. Good morning. And we're also joined by Gemma Carafala, who is a, a lawyer, a community lawyer, and also a 3CR broadcaster. Good morning. Good morning. And we're also joined by Sue Bolton. Sue and Gemma are very kindly sharing a microphone, uh, who is a councillor with the City of Moreland. Good morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. So I wanted to start with a question for you. I just also want to encourage everyone, this is a panel discussion, so feel free to um, interrupt or correct or, um, you know, uh, ask one another questions, um, which I'm sure you all will. And uh, I'll ask first for Fee. Um, you, you work in the social health and support space. Um, just how prevalent is male violence in uh the families and communities that you work with and what do you think some of the drivers of that violence are? Um, uh, so I'll speak briefly to that um, around the prevalence drivers of male violence. Um, I work directly in family violence service practice um, so I um, deal mainly with family violence but I think you know we've seen for decades feminist advocacy groups have acknowledged and advocated against male violence however it's only recently in our society we've begun to address um, the prevalence of male violence in both social violence and family violence. Um, Male violence has existed because of a failure to hold perpetrators accountable and rendering perpetrators invisible uh, when we focus their choice to use violence as somehow the responsibility of the victim survivors, which stems um, mainly from gender inequality. Um, we know from uh, research con um, conducted in Australia and all over the world that men represent overwhelmingly as perpetrators towards other men, women and children. These same statistics also conclude that women represent overwhelmingly as victim survivors of men's violence. Um, currently, two in every five assaults reported to police are family violence related. Um, this also recognised that there are significant rates of underreported violence also. Um, drivers of men's violence, I think we find, um, has stemmed from a society which has been complacent and protective of male privilege. Um, men who choose to commit violence towards women will use specific tactics which are methodical, thought out and a choice which ultimately aims to hold power and control over their chosen victims. Um, intimate partner violence is currently the leading cause of death, disability and illness in Australian women aged 15 to 44 years old um, and all victims who have reported experiencing violence from the age of 15, around 95% have experienced violence from a male perpetrator. Um, the lack of acknowledging and responding to the prevalence of male violence and holding purpose directly accountable is why we're seeing these statistics today in epidemic proportions. It is a shocking st set of statistics. It is shocking, yeah. Um, I was really interested there with what you said about um, conscious and methodical um, you know, denial of um, female safety. If that is the case, how do you engage with perpetrators and is it, is it, if it's conscious and deliberate, how do you start to shift that mindset from repeat perpetrators? Um, I think first we have to acknowledge kind of the drivers of male violence and where um, 
violent behaviours exist in men, um, which, as I said before, it stems from gender inequality, which is a leading driver of male violence towards women. Um, male violence sits on a spectrum which is underpinned by male entitlement and structure, systemic and institutionalised oppression towards women. Um, it starts off with sexist attitudes, jokes, subjectification, rigid uh, stereotype gendered roles um, and male entitlements are all drivers which move to direct um, and more serious forms of violence such as controlling behaviour, coercion, isolation, threats and harassments to the extreme forms of violence of psychological, physical and fatal violence. Um, I think once we kind of recognise this, this is where we can start to kind of um, address where those accountabilities lies. Uh, violence is a choice. Um, and men choose to perpetrate, those who choose to perpetrate around violence. Um, we also have to recognise that gender inequality restricts women's rights to independent social and economic participation and develops rigid stereotypes which harm both women and men. Um, gender inequality condones and emphasises aggression, disrespect and violence towards women. Um, where perpetrators are not held directly accountable to their violence, we see continued prevalence of violence and continued gender inequality. Um, where we engage gender equality, we see equal shares of power, respect and value. By acknowledging the drivers of male violence, we start to address the prevalence of male violence, which will benefit ultimately women and men in eradicating violence. I think um, one of the things that we often hear is, you know, I think over the last few years been a lot more kind of media attention to family violence. But one of the things that is often met mostly by men is this thing of, well, like, you know, you said that, it happens to men as well and these kind of, you know, quick retorts of this kind of thing. Um, and I guess for me, I think, like, is that, do you think is the thing of really, um, is trying to sh quickly shift the blame to some somewhere else and, you know, how do we kind of get, I guess to me, sort of like wanting to sit in that kind of discomfort that men need to sit in to work out and go through a um, idea of working through the change that I think it is all men that need to engage in conversations and change behaviour um, you know, no matter what kind of space that they're at, there's still behaviour that needs to kind of change with all men. I, guess. I think the Me Too movement was really interesting for that because there's this kind of notion um, that is put out there by, in particular, um, uh, I think the men of Twitter, uh, who, as soon as, as a like a feminist or a woman, you say, "Hey, men, your behaviour isn't good enough," they come back with the "Well, not all men." Mm. Um, but what we were seeing with the Me Too movement was this absolute avalanche of women saying, "I've experienced this, and I've experienced this in varying degrees of, um, you know, levels. You know, where it might be something that's a little bit less serious that happens, a comment in the workplace, through to like full-blown sexual assaults." at work um, and you know I think what that really showed was just the sheer volume of women who had experienced those things means that there is a sheer volume of men who are doing it um, and I think that kind of thing was really powerful because I think it really did show that it is all men that need to engage in these discussions mm -hmm. and we do need to start having a conversation about as Fee was saying the kind of power dynamic and the, and the unequal structures underneath mm -hmm. um, that allow um, men to do these things and allow um, a, a prevalent culture where women aren't allowed to speak up generally. Mm -hmm. I think it prompted some conversations in my friendship circle around the lack of touching on ideas of consent during sexual education at school and the mm -hmm. presentation of sexual exploration for young men as kind of uh, getting past the um, 
you know, women were presented as someone that would refuse and then you would put pressure on until they would relent, you know. I remember mm. these conversations in the schoolyard and I think this is what James is talking about, about men beginning to acknowledge the uncomfortableness of, of acknowledging their own complicity, you know, regardless of whether they've committed an act of physical violence, but the, the language and behaviours that young men in Australia exhibit... Um, I think a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. I was interested, Gemma, as well. What for 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 everything that Fee just mentioned, you know, the the systemic um, gender inequality that feeds in to uh, that feeds in uh, to this culture where violence is so prevalent. How well equipped is is the law to deal with that uh, reality? Mm. Um, I mean, it's a difficult thing to speak about because I think the reality is the law is pretty badly equipped. Um, but it's difficult to say that because you don't want to be a public voice saying that women shouldn't um, go down those processes. And what we know is that currently um, violence against women is really badly underreported. And so it's a difficult thing mm-hmm. to come out publicly and say the law does a pretty bad job. Um, but as someone who's, and I'm not a criminal lawyer, um, but as someone who's sat through a couple of um, sex crime trials, I personally don't know that I would necessarily come forward and report something knowing that that would be the end result. Seeing women cross-examined by, you know, generally older male barristers about their previous sexual histories and, um, you know, there's... I think the law is a really slow place um, to bring about change and I don't know that we're doing a fantastic job of making things easy for people who report um, in particular sexual violence. Can I just say something there? I mean, I I think, well, I think you're right about that. Um, And I guess the thing is we have to focus really on prevention and cultural Mm. change. And there are a lot of hypocrisies within culture so that, you know, I mean, say... This is a few years back now when um, it was sort of well-publicised case when a woman, um, Jill Maher, an ABC employee, was murdered in Brunswick and there was a huge outpouring about um, violence against women. But, you know, what do you see, say, com- you know, the case of this particular woman compared to um, maybe some of the young women who might be you know, sort of groupies around footy players, for example, um, some of those cases where, um, you know, a lot of flirtation going on, but then actually women have been raped and and then um, quite a um, social division about whether or not, you know, women should be believed, whether the women have caused it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there are a lot of double sta- cultural double standards um, and you see that in movies which actually legitimate um, stalking, for example. Like a lot of Hollywood movies, it's all about a male, um, or sometimes can be a woman, but um, generally a male, who, you know, if she says no, you keep on demonstrating mm. your love. Um, you know, there's lots of songs and, and movies and so forth, which are basically, I mean, in reality, what you're talking about is stalking behaviour and... Mm. <laughs> it's not okay, um, but it's that sort of, you know, it, it, 
there is that sort of obs- obsession. So there is a lot of hypocrisy with um, questions of violence against women. So certain circumstances it's recognised and other circumstances it's um, legitimated. And in the case of, say, some of the footy player rapes, um, I personally know of two young women who did sex education two different schools one had a male teacher, one had a female sex ed, sex ed teacher um, and they both of these teachers basically showed them a film clip about the footy um, rape um, cases and both of them said um, what should, at the end of the clip, what should the girl have done differently um, and so, you know, and the, some of the surveys of young men like high school men um, men, boys, um, actually do show some pretty appalling mm. attitudes, which does indicate, and, and I gather from teachers, there's no proper training of sex ed teachers, and it means, um, I'm not saying that's the be-all and the end-all, but at least there needs to be some proper, um, well-explained, um, in, in the sort of terms that young people understand, proper education around consent mm. at high school mm. before you get anywhere else but then the, it, you know there's a whole cultural dimension as well and those double standards you're talking about you know we saw from our comments from uh, representatives of the police and politicians coming out and talking about situational awareness talking about women being more cautious and we saw the responses online that from women saying they're always cautious because of these realities that we went through at the beginning of the show. How effective is uh, the um, suggestion of further caution and controlling one's movements, controlling the spaces one enters in combating male violence? Um, I might speak to that. So um, I think the the reality is that all women you meet have a safety plan, um, whether you have instructed them to develop one or not. Within family violence, when we develop safety plan alongside of women, um, it will be based specifically around um, long-term family violence um, and the risks associated with that particular perpetrator, and a safety plan is developed um, specifically around those risks. Um, But when we engage with those women at the first step, we'll find that they've already got safety planning in place, even if they're conscious of it or not, because that's the society that we live in. Um, I think asking women to stay safe is completely obsolete because it's something we just do naturally and instinctively. Um, I think what we've seen when perpetrators are held accountable is that's when their risks are reduced and that's when their behaviours, interventions are put in place that can reduce um, and minimise... that their violence towards um, their chosen victim and also that can lead on to um, potential other victims as well. Um, I think there's a bit of a confusion around what a safety plan will do. Um, I think people assume that it will directly stop a perpetrator's uh, behaviour. I think safety plans seek to remove a person from the perpetrator's risk to a place of safety, but it does not... um, stop a perpetrator's violent attitudes and behaviours. Only perpetrators being held accountable to the behaviours will, um, alongside recognising gender inequality and gender violence, to reduce that risk. Um, You know, if you put interventions, whether it's justice system, whether it's support services, um, whether it's, um, you know, being an active bystander, um, 
you know, men talking to men, um, having respectful relationships, educations at school. Um, I think really we need direct messaging to perpetrators mm. um, that the behaviours are not okay um, and that they can seek support. Um, it's, they've made a choice to use violence. They can make a choice um, to seek supports also. Yeah, and, and I think in particular... Like, safety messaging in this type of case where it's a stranger who attacks someone in a park is, like, particularly infuriating. Um, because, firstly, that's not where women are actually likely to face danger. Statistically, yeah. a dark mm. park at night time is far safer than my own bedroom. Um, you know, because what the statistics say is that I'm most likely to be assaulted, injured, raped mm. by someone that I know, probably someone that I love, <laughs> Um, and, you know, the idea that we should be careful when we're walking through dark parks and bring a mobile phone with us is just, um, it just, it misses an opportunity to actually look at what the dangers that realistically um, we face. And mm. I think, it, yeah, it's particularly infuriating as well because, um, you know, Eurydice did have her phone out. Um, she did send a text to a friend um, minutes before um, she died she sent a text to the friend saying that she was almost home safe so you know in a context where from a really young age um you know i can only speak for my own example but you know i've learned to walk down a dark street holding my car keys between my knuckles as like a potential makeshift weapon in case someone attacks me yeah um you know women have you know go through these horrendously upsetting and um I think, like, energy-consuming mental processes all day, every day to make sure that they're safe. Um, And then the notion that we just focus on women here to make sure we're doing something better kind of makes it seem like there's some epidemic of um, careless women rather than an epidemic of men choosing to use violence against us. And that they're somehow responsible for that other person's behaviour, which no-one's ever responsible um, for another's violence towards them. Um, have absolutely no control over that. Yeah. I just want to bring in another voice to the conversation. Um, we're joined on the phone by Margarita Winditch. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but Margarita is a sexual assault counsellor and she also educates people on uh, family violence at Victoria University. Good morning, Margarita. Good morning. So... A number of our panellists have already been speaking about the way that sexist attitudes are at the root, uh, deep in the conversation, deep at the root cause of of the violence that we uh, see so commonly in our communities. Can you just expand a little uh, in your experience and research, what kind of role do sexist attitudes play and what kind of ways have you seen that behaviour be able to be moderated within the work you've done? Look, I think... um it's quite important for us to get a sense and understanding of why we've got so much violence in our society. You know, and when we look broadly, we can really say we live in a very brutalized and brutalizing world, yeah? And um, understanding where this violence comes from is very important so we know how to address it and actually eliminate it because I think at the end of the day, everybody wants to live in a world that is free of violence and irrespective of gender here to speak. And my standpoint is that I think violence is it's really deeply part of the DNA of our current system, you know, under capitalism. And that sexual assault and domestic violence themselves are not innate human behaviours, but that they operate in a particular social context. 
So I would say that sexual assault and domestic family violence, which is part of the spectrum of violence against women, I'd want a symptom of our kind of unequal economic system that puts women a second-class citizen. But they're also, in a way, necessary enforcers of this gender oppression. Because when you think about it, there's no, no better way than keeping women in their place by actually using violence against them. So I think it's very useful for us to have an understanding where this um, violence comes from and that it's deeply entrenched in gender oppression and, you know, your, your other panellists have already raised that. Now, the way, and I think this is expressed, is in, as, as the panellists have already argued too, is in, is in very different ways. But I actually want to just raise briefly a very interesting book that was written by Cordelia Fine, who's an Australian neuropsychologist, um, and the book um, is called Delusions of Gender, where she looks of how people are socialised very early on and, and that, that violence against women, or let's say male violence, is actually not part of our DNA, uh, but that it is really um, really kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's environmental, so to speak. And because our society is more and more kind of... Um, uh, commodified, you know, all our behaviour, social relations are commodified. Um, we see that that uh, we have an increased gendered nature of human development. Yeah, where boys, girls, we identify as such are very early on straightjacketed into very specific gender roles, and I would say much earlier even than I remember when I was a little kid. And Cordelia also says, if parents, for instance, who who are pregnant woman, um, uh, if she is aware that maybe, you know, what, what, what the kind of assigned gender of her fetus is. People even speak differently to their fetus in the womb. And, and, mm-hmm. and for me, I think doing this prevention work, one of the essences is to really look at how can we make a concerted effort to kind of uh, attack those outmoded ideological justifications and also the institutional reinforcement of gender oppression, you know, this very rigid gender roles that always put women in a kind of nurturing um, space, but also suggesting that men actually own women's sexuality. And I think this is a critical element to try and address um, the kind of drivers of gendered violence. Yeah, that's um, all really interesting points. I, I was wondering... If all of the, if these behaviours are learned and taught by the society that uh-huh. we live within, what role can we expect our our government or our institutions to play in undoing some of this damaging, um, yep. uh, putting people into boxes or you know the creation of genders that 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 result in such unbalanced outcomes and such horrendous violence? I think prevention has to come on different levels. Yeah, if we really want to attack gender oppression and I think for us really having to go with gender oppression we actually end up not just creating a safer world for women but also for men and all you know people's fluid genders because we know it's that rigidity that kind of binary uh, of male and female that has actually caused a lot of problems too but I think critical have to be uh, the question of systems change and um, where we actually start to look at attacking the economic uh, foundations of oppression, which is starting to look at, you know, um, finding different ways of providing financial security, accessing housing options for victims, survivors of domestic family violence, um, of, of 
of actually changing um, of resource allocation, so to speak. And I think people need to get more angry about that. We know that under our, our current government, which has got a highly neoliberal agenda, this will consistently attack vulnerable population groups. And with vulnerable, I mean discriminated, like women, people of colour, all of that. And I think... That's where people have to just get more angry and demand real change that actually starts to address the economic imbalance and then the ideological justifications with it. But also I think it is about individual victim-survivor support. Yeah? What is it that people who experience violence need to restore some sense of self and some healing from the experience? And as panellists have already argued, it is also critical within that space to also hold perpetrators accountable. And that's not just individual perpetrators, I would argue. I think for a lot of people, for instance, the role of the police is highly challenging, yeah? Um, for some, you know, people in our society, it's the police that also perpetrates this violence, and that includes gendered violence on, 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 on people, yeah? So I think um, where I sit, it's about what different ways can we use to tackle this gender oppression, Mm. And I think um, it means actually having much more uh, space for social movements to actually demand this change in different ways. And with the social movement, I mean hearing lots of different voices because not everybody has got exactly the same needs who might have experienced gender violence. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, Fee, in your work and Sue as well, you know, you work with a wide section of the community, are the, you know, is the segmentation and the oppression of certain groups something that, that you're seeing in the work that you do? Does that ring true, what Marguerite is talking about? Do you want to go? Or... <laughs> oh, I'm happy to ha have a go, <laughs> and plus I want to uh, use Marguerite's comments as a jumping off point to another element. I mean, I think. Um, I think at the moment, especially when we're seeing a massive economic crisis for a layer of Australians, um, because I think Margarita's comments about um, looking at where violence comes from and, and in terms of our capitalist system it actually is a really important point. And I think, I mean, it's not the only important point because also... Um, Rich men abuse women as well. It's not just something of, you know, working class men, mm. etc. There's a lot of family violence that happens behind closed doors in, um, and rapes that happen in Turak and, and so forth, but it's behind closed doors and dealt with in a behind closed doors fashion. But I think um, given that the family is an economic unit, um, and I think this is why, especially in terms of family partner violence, um, I think this is important. Uh, one of the reasons why this issue in society is so endemic is because the family developed as an economic institution and where, you know, the original family, um, when class society started to develop, um, women and children were seen as possessions of men um, it, it, because it was all tied up with um, the development of the private ownership of property. And I think, while that was a very long time ago, thousands of years ago, um, I think that's the reason why this issue has been so difficult to tackle because, in a sense, to, in, even in modern 21st century society, 
um, there's elements of that that still hang over in the family. And the family is an economic institution. And sometimes, um, you know, I mean, people can barely survive as a family unit, let alone leave, um, you know, and discover you're even poorer than you were as a poor family unit. And right now, when you've got New Start hasn't been increased for 25 years, mm-hmm. um, minimum wage is shrinking and shrinking. The cost of living is rising way faster than wages. And you've got incredible housing unaffordability um, so that in Broadmeadows and Preston, just some figures I remember, there were no affordable houses or or units for someone on Newstart allowance. Um, you know, there's a couple of months back and it'd be probably the same now. So all, that sort of thing also restricts women's ability to leave dangerous relationships, um, you know, unhappy relationships or dangerous relationships. And so those issues of economic independence for women, um, even besides dealing with the question of women being able to be emotionally independent from abusive men, um, just, you know, you, you ha- the ha- issues of housing, alternative housing for women um, and economic independence are really fundamental to women being able to leave abusive relationships. And, of course, that cuts into social oppressions and working-class oppression, all of that, because the poorest parts of society and, you know, they're going to be, um, are going to be um, the people who've got the least choices um, in order to be able to leave, um, you know, dangerous relationships. Well, we spoke a little bit before about um, some of the kind of legal issues and, I guess, responses and things like that. Um, and on the phone now we've got to join the conversation is Lizzie O'Shea, who's a lawyer, author and activist. Um, so welcome, Lizzie. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for running this panel. Um, so I guess, you know, one of the responses that we often kind of hear around, um, you know, when there is um, gendered violence in society is, you know, response of more CCTV cameras, increased police powers, um, you know, increased police uh, presence everywhere, you know, this kind of thing. Um, you know, I think, like, I guess, you know, tougher sentences and things like that as well. And, I mean, what do you think is the impact of, um, you know, these kind of solutions and on on stopping gendered violence? Well, of course, I think the problem that we're confronting is a pretty terrible one. And the tragedy that occurred up in Princess Park is just absolutely awful. And women are right to be very upset and outraged that this um, has happened to somebody and that also the response that instinctively comes from uh, law enforcement is to say that you should take care for your own, of your own safety. But I am very um, cautious of posing as a solution uh, increased police presence and increased police powers. And in part that's because over the last period, particularly in Victoria, there's been an enormous increase in the prison population. Um, and that's, there's a variety of reasons why that's the case. But it, it is huge. Uh, between 2009 and 2014, the prison, imprisonment rate increased by in Victoria. So there was a big focus in the last administration on building more prison beds. And we've seen recently that the um, Labor government also talks big about improving police powers and extending sentencing. Um, And so what I would say about that is that police already have a huge capacity to arrest people, to keep them in prison for longer. Uh, We've seen trends to 
parole to bail in particular as well um, as the end of suspended sentences, which means that people are in prison for longer and we don't necessarily see a correlation with a decrease in violence against women. We're still seeing women dying regularly at the hands of their partner and we're still seeing tragedies like this. Um, it, what happened in Princess Park, which is a slightly different issue because it wasn't by, uh, Eurydice wasn't obviously murdered by someone that she knew, which means that statistically that's quite a rare phenomenon, um, but it's still obviously a, a terrible one. So when we're looking at how we could um, allow women or give space for women to be able to feel safe in public spaces at all times of the day, I think if we're looking to police to provide that kind of safety, we're looking in the wrong spot. Uh, it will unfortunately, I think, involve um, longer-term work uh, that's more complex and um, more uh, universal across society generally, not just in um, relation to law and order. It's going to take that kind of work over the long term before we can see to a change in the way that women feel around public spaces and the way in which people, particularly men, respond to um, particular situations. So it's undoing that uh, process of learning violence as a response to um, certain emotional situations or social situations and also um, giving women the confidence that uh, that men aren't are something to be frightened of at night when you're walking through the park. So I don't think police are the right people to look to to provide that kind of um, change. And I would say, just before I let you ask me another question of the panel, that um, the two biggest people who will, uh, I think, suffer if we call for greater powers for police and to reduce bail requirements are Aboriginal people uh, who suffer at the hands of police all the time um, and we should have to show solidarity with our Aboriginal sisters when we're talking about violence against women and um, solutions to that problem and think carefully about involving the police in that. And then also women, because women's incarceration rate is growing. So when we give police more powers and we um, talk about in, uh, imprisoning more people, the people who are likely to fall into that category are going to be women. And we need to be very careful about how we frame these discussions to make sure that we are um, doing the work that will dismantle um, the conditions that give rise to violence against women rather than um, in, impose more upon those who are already suffering. Yeah, I think um, one of the things, you know, that kind of reflection of the um, violence we see is, I mean, I'd argue that in the recent, you know, the past year, we've actually seen an increased militarisation of the police force in Victoria and the Andrews government providing a lot of, um, you know, semi-lethal and non-lethal kind of weaponry and things to combat protests and things like that. Um, you know, so this is this is a really... Um, for you know a very male dominated chauvinist kind of um, institution itself as well, and the kind of reflection that has on you know when that's kind of held up in this esteem in society reflects I think in a negative way as well. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think one of the most fascinating things I've ever learnt about like um, gendered violence in the law is that I think it was in the late 80s, the Law Reform Commission in Victoria um, realised that there was a problem with really low sentencing for um, sexual assaults. So people were generally getting lower sentences for a rape than they were, for example, for breaking into someone's home and stealing their TV. So the Law Reform Commission said, well, we need to up minimum sentences. And so the... Uh, sorry, maximum sentences. And so they were increased in the legislation. But, like, 
it blew my mind that the result of that was that conviction rates plummeted. So juries, knowing that a person could suddenly actually get a hefty sentence for what they'd done, weren't willing to actually find men guilty of those crimes. It's, it, and it just is a stark reminder of the need to just not put all our, our attention onto kind of institutions and laws and rules, um, but actually do the groundwork to do that societal change stuff as well. Yeah, I must say as well, I do think that a lot of um, uh, flax falls to defence lawyers and as somebody who's a lawyer but not a defence lawyer, I do understand that they're doing their job. I think that um, for raising certain defences, for example, and I understand why it's awful because you don't think that um, people should be able to raise a defence that, um, you know, someone was in a particular position, or particularly around sexual assaults when they talk about previous relationships between the offenders and all, uh, the offender and the victim, for example. But I also think um, defence lawyers are doing their job, which is uh, fulfilling a role in a system that's very poorly suited to addressing these kinds of crimes. So the the scorn that's heaped on them, I think, is misplaced. We need to rethink how we um, address uh, violence against women in a, a justice system and note that the current format, particularly the adversarial system, is very dysfunctional for that particular purpose. And I completely agree with you. That doesn't surprise me at all, that the study that you're talking about in relation to juries. But in general, I do believe juries do their job very well. And there's also some interesting um, research around uh, people who uh, look at prison sentences imposed by a judge as a result of a jury trial. And the more that you learn about it, the less the less that you know about a trial, the more likely you are to want a um, more serious sentence. The more you learn about the trial, the more you participate in the process, often as a jury member is the way that we research it, um, shows that you're more critical of a judge for sentencing um, more harshly. So that, that the less you know about crime, the more likely you're going to call for um, uh, harsher penalties. And the more you understand how complex crimes are, um, the more nuanced your view becomes. That's not as that's not trying to say that we um, appreciate why people might perpetrate particular kinds of violence, but that we realise that the adversarial system is a very poor fit for addressing the kinds of complex problems that we're encountering today that have very um, you know, deep social roots that are, relate to all sorts of different social services like previous panel members were talking about. So we do need to keep that context in mind, I think. Uh, look, I just want to thank everybody. We're going to have to finish it there because we are out of time. Um, but to Lizzie on the phone and Margarita, to Fee and Sue and Gemma here in the studio, thank you so much for taking some time to come and talk to James and I and the broader listening audience about these issues. Um, thanks very much. Thanks for thank having you. us. Thanks for having us. Bye. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. 
We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and we just had a long discussion about men's violence with a bunch of panellists. Um, you'll be able to catch that online. Uh, it'll be up later today. Uh, we're now going to talk to Jessamy Gleeson, who's one of the organisers of Reclaim Princess Park, which is an event on this evening to honour Eurasie Dixon and to hold space in the garden. So good morning, Jessamy. Thanks so much for joining us. That's all right. Good morning. Now, could you just give us a little bit of information about the event, um, when it's on and what people can expect? Yeah, of course. So we're asking people to join us here at Princess Park from 5.30pm. So there'll be um, people arriving from 5.30pm and we're giving them time to settle in until 6 o'clock. And at 6 o'clock the lights on the soccer pitch will go out and we're asking people to bring candles and if not we will have some on hand and just come and hold some space together from 6 to 6.30. So we're asking people to sit um, in quiet and just save some time for a bit of reflection and quiet resistance and just be here in the space together. So there won't be any long big speeches, there won't be any um, kind of formal walks or anything, although we're encouraging people if they want to do that afterwards, they're more than welcome to, just to sit here and um, hold vigil together from 6 to 6.30. And at 6.30pm the lights will go back on and we'll conclude. Uh, hi, it's James here. And just, I guess, yeah, what does that mean to kind of hold space in that and, um, you know, sort of, I guess, come out of different forms of protests and um, reflective kind of um, movements and things in the past? But I guess for listeners, you know, what does that mean to kind of hold hold that kind of space? It just means to sort of come together and show that we can, we are entitled to have this space and to just hold a vigil together in memorial and in celebration and everything to do with Eurydice. So it's not necessarily about having a big protest or anything else, although don't get me wrong, first thing Tuesday morning I will happily help out and organise a formal protest, but it's about wanting to do something quiet and in solidarity and to show, you know, how hurt and upset and, um, you know, all of those feelings that we have in relation to um, Eurydice and her death. And I guess is there um, perhaps afterwards or or um, you know, directly or, or some time afterwards, um, will there be kind of spaces where people can, uh, you know, perhaps debrief or, or um, you know, get together with some people to reflect yeah. on, on how that, you know, that kind of experience was for them? Because I think, you know, that um, kind of holding space, like, you know, what you were describing can, you know, sometimes bring up a lot of kind of emotion and yeah. feelings and things as well. Absolutely, and we've had a number of really generous offers that we've taken people up on in terms of having people on hand that can help with that kind of support. Mm. So we'll have people down here um, that will be trained in that kind of stuff and willing to help anyone who is particularly upset or distressed. And um, But, yeah, we'll have a lot of people on site that can help with that. We'll be around on the night. You'll be able to see us in high-fees orange vests. And um, if anyone is having you know feelings that are overwhelming or wants some time away, we can definitely help with that. 
Jessamy, there's been a lot of mainstream media coverage already about the event. I saw it on Channel 7 News last night. Are you at all mm. concerned with the, the media becoming involved? And have you had any, have they reached out to you and had a discussion about an appropriate way to cover the event or? Uh, they have reached out to me. I mean, I'm down here at the park right now and I've been on, you know, different television outlets and whatever else this morning and it's, it's quite, um, Awful. Uh, the mainstream media isn't necessarily bad at doing this kind of stuff. Um, they just want the next sort of big thing. I've said to a few of them, and, you know, I'll say to you guys too, I will happily come back on air and talk about women's violence, um, women's experiences of violence. Um, first thing Tuesday morning, I will say it, as a lot of women have been saying it every day for the past however many, mm-hmm. you know, millennia, but it's a case of it being awful when we need instances like this to really centralise about what should be a larger, ongoing, bigger cultural discussion that can't be fixed with things like today's meeting um, in Melbourne and bigger lights and, you know, more safety and security precautions that are supposed to be for women. So now my focus is very much on tonight and digital because we do want it to be focused on Eurydice, um, but you know, if the mainstream media wish to show up here, you know, every morning to talk about women's violence, I'd happily speak to them then. But unfortunately, that's just not the case. Mm. So when people are arriving this afternoon, if they're arriving early, what, which part of the park should they be going to? It's the park directly south of the Clifton Hill Tennis Court. Um, so again, south of Icon Park as well. And it will be the pitch further to the east. So it will be between Princess Park Drive and Royal Parade. I don't think we'll be that hard to miss. Mm. Um, I would encourage people to come by public transport or on foot because parking is rather limited and we do want to be really respectful to local residents, of which I'm sure a number will be here as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, south of Icon Park, just south of the Clifton Hill Tennis Court. Oh, well, thanks for so much for taking the time in what is, I'm sure, a busy morning. And, um, yeah, um, see you there tonight. That's Now it is time, a little later than normal, for our regular segment, Over the Wall. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we speak to Mark O'Brien, the CEO of Tenancy Victoria, about the Australian housing bubble, its causes, its effects on renters and homeowners, and possible solutions. In 1985, the Hawke government introduced a capital gains tax. In 1987, after an earlier attempt, negative gearing was linked with personal tax and the seeds of the housing bubble were sown. When the Howard government discounted the capital gains tax by 50% in 1999, things really got going and housing prices went through the roof. Mark O'Brien explained how these increases came about. When the change was made with the capital gains tax exemption in the late 1990s, 
the pattern of investment in residential property went up exponentially, almost immediately. So that seemed to be a very significant contributor to investor activity. It looked like it was driving more people into the market and the extension of that would be more supply into the market, but it wasn't. It was just driving more activity with no more supply. And in fact, what seems to be the case now is that there was just competition for existing supply that it was driving and nothing else. So now, nearly 20 years later, we can see that despite that frenzy of activity, the conditions in the rental market have hardly changed. If anything, affordability has gotten worse, not better. So there were clearly other things going on alongside that seeming burst of investment that were counteracting whatever economic leverage that was supposed to introduce into the market. It just didn't work that way. And alongside that, we obviously had a period where house prices went up significantly. So whilst investor activity was going on, there's no doubt some of that was driving up house prices. But the feedback loop in that is really about existing owners. So there's many more existing owners buying and selling than there is investors. So it was the existing owners that were piggybacking on that feedback loop of property prices increasing, trading around in the market, that was creating additional demand that was leading to more increases. Next, Mark explained two effects of the bubble. Firstly, the increase in rents over the last two decades, and secondly, the increasing inability of low-income earners to break out of the rental market and into the home-buying market. What we know overall is that property prices relative to incomes have risen quite dramatically in a generation. So they've gone from something like three to four times average incomes to six, seven, eight times average incomes. There's a clear trend about the proportion of money that people are spending on property purchase. So purchase affordability has declined over time. What that's meant in the rental market is something slightly different. So rents have followed property prices more or less, but there's been periods of some significant variations. That's because there's a closer association between rents and incomes than there is between property prices and incomes. But there's no doubt that the increase in property prices has dragged rents up with it. So there is tension around that. And of course, we see that then in the really poor levels of affordability, particularly for low-income renters. So the sort of the guts of that story is incomes have increased for certain sections of the community, and with those additional incomes, those parts of the community have been prepared to spend more on their housing for all kinds of reasons, largely to do with the tax system and the the fact that this is like a Ponzi scheme, that the more people do it, the more money you make on it. So that's actually driven things up. But of course, not all boats rise on the tide. So the people who are drowning in that are low-income people, particularly people on statutory incomes. So their incomes haven't been able to keep up with either rises in rents or rises in home purchase a lot of those households have dropped out of home purchase. My parents were working people. They bought a relatively cheap place out on the fringe in the early 1960s. My parents today wouldn't be able to do that. There wouldn't be properties available to do it, and they wouldn't have the purchasing capacity to do it. So families like them now are locked into the rental market and probably will be for life. 
There was always a significant proportion of working people that were in the rental market anyway, particularly after the war, and schemes that government put in place, like even public housing at that time, tried to move them out of the rental market, but that stalled in the 1980s. So we're really seeing the long-term effect of a lot of policy decisions that have happened at different times. So where that leaves us is you've got this tension that you've got more people across a larger proportion of the income spectrum that are stuck in the rental market and they're stuck because they can't get out into home purchase and they're stuck with higher rents that are now becoming a cycle that partly contribute to not being able to get into home purchase. So the combination of that's terrible for the private rental market. The private rental market can't make enough margins for investors to interest institutional investors who might then actually approach it more from the point of view of very long-term capital gain rather than speculation. That might make it better for tenants, but there's not enough margins in it for that to work. And the people who are left behind are squeezed in terms of their ability to pay for other necessities. So a lot of people don't ever move into home purchase, even at the point at which they're establishing their families. Stable housing is so important for people to participate economically and socially, but we haven't kept pace with that change, and we're now in a position where there'll be a lot of adverse consequences as a result of that. Over the last two decades, successive governments have been averse to reforming negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount. Federal Labor has finally had the political courage to signal that they will act on both, including a halving of the capital gains tax discount. Mark weighed in on these issues and the effects they may have. I'm a supporter of getting rid of negative gearing and uh, the capital gains tax exemption, or at least grandfathering negative gearing and, the, and then getting rid of the capital gains tax exemption. So now if you did that... Um, It may have an effect, but I'd be really reluctant to predict what the effect would look like and how significant that would be for property prices. And I have no confidence in the predictions that are made by a lot of different economists about it'll mean, you know, a 2% reduction in prices. Clearly, there's a whole lot of complexity in that system, and I don't get any real sense that anybody's got a handle on that. So there are things that you could do, but I think those things now, there's going to be a bit of suck it and see. Our problem in a policy sense is... We want the answers before we do anything. So we have paralysis until we are completely satisfied that we understand all the possible consequences of any reform. And in housing, that just is a formula to do nothing. You make predictions, the predictions are contested, the political class gets anxious, so they do nothing. What we actually need is politicians who are prepared to give things a crack. So kudos to the at least the federal ALP that they just bit the bullet and said, this seems like a rort, let's get rid of the rort and see what happens. We've gotten ourselves into the position where we're going to require a bit of that kind of policy approach where we do some things that we think are the right things to do, we monitor the effect of them and if they look like they're working, we put in place other measures or we strengthen those measures. But the idea that you try to predict in advance what's this going to look like and you wait for certainty around the consequences before you do anything, it's just going to mean we continue with what we're doing, which is not good for an increasing number of people in the community. That's it for this week. We would like to again thank Mr O'Brien for his time and his insights.
Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR. That was Over the Wall. And um hope everyone's been enjoying the show today. It feels, we feel very rushed that we, um, uh, you know, we had a lot of people that were on the line um, and, you know, in studio before. But And just a, a you know, big topic to cover. So true. I'm glad we did it. Um, and right now we are, we've got a special guest in... Um, Kind of, you know, I guess taking, uh, moving away from what we were, I guess, talking about before, and we've we've had to come, we had to get an expert to come in and um, approach some difficulties that Jackson and I have had with our on-air relationship. So we've got an expert. Are we doing this publicly? Uh, yes. Yeah. I thought this was a private. That's how I roll. So Public we have Dr. Karen Debbie Cradle who. Probably uh, listeners would already know from um, a famous podcast, um, but she is a, a world-renowned um, couples counsellor. I hate it when you do this, James. Um, doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Mm, you can call me Karen. That's fine, James. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I always feel privileged when people agree to air their mm, their deep-seated... Mm, uh, oh, I what nots? I didn't agree. Um, but I'm willing I, to. I have an email that says yeah. contrary. But uh, well, you would agree that we have issues. So. Yes. Mm. Let's get down to it, Jackson. What are you feeling in your body? Can you can you describe it? Can you give it a color? Gray. Mm. Grey. And uh, is it sort of a stabby shape or is it... um, And does this only happen when you think about James or is it it always there? Oh, look, you know, when James is considerate and brings me a cup of tea in the mornings, then it changes to a soft yellow. Uh-huh. But when he books counselling without my knowledge and drops me in the middle of a public airing of my dirty laundry or mm. our dirty laundry, James, uh, I feel, yeah, great. And I guess it is a little a little dagger-shaped. Mm. Sometimes it's good to get out of our comfort zones, though. Wouldn't you agree, James? I agree. I, I, just, I just wanted us to... I want us to be closer, to have a better on-air relationship and... You know, I, I just, I want the show to to thrive. Well, you know, I've been putting the effort in. I came, I went, I went to Hadfield. I'd never been there before. I visited mm. you. I met your family. Uh, what have you done for me recently, exactly? For all your, I want to be closer. I want to get along. Well, you know, why don't you put your time and effort into getting to know okay. me and my family. Yeah, we're just going to try some non-violent communication here. So Fine. Sounds good. So, James, when Jackson says that he has made the effort to go to Hadfield, how does that make you feel? Can you please repeat back Jackson's words to him so that he knows he's understood? Uh, and then describe the colour of the feeling that arises within your body and its location and shape and smell, if it has one. Smell is very important, very. Uh, well, I guess I feel a bit confused 
Um, and it's probably, I guess, a light pink color. And it's situated yeah. um, between, I guess, just on my shoulders because of the burden I have to carry from his words. Wow. I'm sensing a bit of pass ag vibes there. Uh, so let's just let's just reword that, um, Jackson. When you, I'll, I'll be James. I'll be James. Jackson, when you implied that it was a chore to come to Hadfield and meet my family and hang out with my beautiful family, um, mm. I feel, I feel unappreciated. Um, I feel um, sadness. I feel, oh. Uh, what? Just put out, really. So, James, there's a lot of eyes in that sentence. Mm. I feel, I want, I do. You know. Well, Jackson, I can only be responsible for my own feelings. So, yeah. Well, fine. Why do you have your arms crossed, Jackson? I'm feeling a little defensive. Mm. Mm. <laughs> defensive. Do you, do you find this? Is this funny? Do do I find this? Oh fun? no, sorry, Doctor. Uh, I was sorry. talking to Jackson. Um, look, I, I, I don't. I'm not really sure how to feel right now. I, I, um, I was simply responding to your suggestion that you wanted us to get closer, and I'm, I'm curious. It wasn't a chore. I had a really nice time in Hadfield. You know, it was, it was a good time. We sat and chatted and. You know, planned our radio show, and I, you know, I think that's moving in the right direction. I, I'm feeling a little worried at the moment. We've just lost Will. You know, we, we, we've lost one of our wheels. It's true. And mm. that relationship, I don't repair that. As you know, I don't often wow. ride a bike, so a two-wheel vehicle, i.e., you and I, I'm, I, I don't know whether it's going to work. You know, I'm, mm. I need a third wheel. I'm a tr- I'm, I'm going to try something. I'm going to try something. I use a variety of unconventional modalities, <laughs> but this one I think will particularly resonate with you. On the count of three, I want you both to name the vehicle or mode of transport that defines you as an individual. One, two, three. Bike. Truck. Why did you wait oh, until after wow. I've spoken? <laughs> truck beats bike. Um, you do okay, not. That, that you don't drive go. a truck. You, you really can't no. overthink it. You do have to say it at the same time, otherwise it doesn't work. Let's okay, try. We'll try again. Okay, we'll try something else. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not very. I'm, this is all very new to me. Yes, I can some people tell. can't be th- therapized. A know? lot some of people don't aren't prepared to put in the work. Or simply aren't capable of insight. You you may have a personality disorder. Um, <laughs> it's not for me to say at this point. I could give you a diagnosis at the end of the session, but at this point, I'll just add to the list. I'll refrain. Yes. Now, <clears throat> let's try. Let's try something else. Let's try favorite celebrities. Celebrities that define you. Okay. Okay. Don't overthink it. First person that comes to your mind. One, two, three. Heath Ledger. James. Uh, I... Uh, you, I... Th- 
it, it's it's ruined. Uh, yeah. Don't you even know a celebrity, James? Are you so distant from the mainstream hoi polloi? You can't even think of one off the top of your head. Yeah, I think that's what's so, going on here. He's so absent. I think he's trying to assert his I just, alternativeness. I mm. just... So many celebrities just have let you down. They let you down over the years that you just can't have heroes anymore. Well, no one wants a celebrity to be their hero. That would just All be right. sick. All right, let's do this fictional hero, okay? Mm. Can be a novel, can be from a comic, can be a film, can be um, a fairy tale. I think we got I this. Could be a, a child's toy from the 80s, such as a popple or a keeper. Ooh. All right. One, two, three. Batman. Robin Hood. Batman, Robin oh, Hood. A fascist, uh, law-enforcing, uh, violent, misogynistic, flu- um, bat enthusiast. I don't think Robin Hood wasn't that bad. No, James, you've misinterpreted me. I was analysing Batman. <laughs> Batman, mm. you know, he's a... Uh, fascist. Philanthropist who's just trying to, trying to do good in the philanthropist. World. Oh, so he's taking the gen- the role of government. Is he? Is he going? What about Robin uh, Hood? Huh? What about Robin Hood? Well, he is a thief. Yes, he is righteous thief. Yes, a vigilante. Because well, they're both they're, vigilantes, really, aren't they? And they're both violent. Maybe men, that's actually. the nexus of your of your connection here. You both have a desire to move outside. Of the mainstream. You have a desire uh, to... I think, yeah, we're both trying away. to seek justice somewhere. Yeah. And we're just trying to find the way that our paths can, can mesh in together. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it feels like this session has taken a bit of a combative one between Jackson and I, and I don't... I certainly don't want that. I want us to to get along and to to be for our paths, you know, to meet together. Like mm. Jackson to be the Robin to my Batman, that kind of, you know, mutual <gasps> path kind of thing. It's quite appropriate. That's the right. It's good wordplay, James. I appreciate that about you. That yes. Good. And I'd say you both feel that you are probably responsible for um, creating change in the world. Is that mm. so? Well, not solely responsible, but, you know, oh. we, we all are responsible, well, you, sure. So you'd have a friar talk, I suppose, <laughs> as well. <laughs> or um, a little John. A little John, yeah. Mm. Or a Maid Marian. Mm. I think, um, mm. well, I, I really think um, this session, I, I feel, has been really helpful. Um, but Good. It, if there are other people that want to listen in on some advice or you know, get their own advice, how can they um, find out about the podcast that you're a part of? Yes, my podcast, Why Are You Here? It's available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, It should be available on any other app that you use. Uh, Just search for Why Are You Here? You can also search Kirsten Law, who is my producer. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are three episodes currently out with a new one tomorrow. And... By listening in, you will glean oh, many, many pearls of wisdom. Well, that's great. And we, we sent out the details yesterday um, through social media on how people can 
subscribe and listening to the podcast. So please Fantastic. do. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I actually really enjoyed that. I think you're really good at your job. Thank you. I, I know I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I can see that I've broken you down adequately. My, my arms are no longer folded. They aren't. And I can see um, that you perhaps have gone back to yellow. <laughs> yes, I'm a nice, warm yellow. Great. Well, thank you, Jackson and James. Thank you so much, thank Dr. You. Debbie. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast, and we've actually got someone who's calling in about an action in Ararat today. Uh, it's an action to defend the Japwarung women's birthing tree, and I think we have on the line Sandra Onus on the line. Are you there? Hello. Hello. Hello, Sandra. Is that Auntie Sandra Onus? Is that you? That's me, yes. So what's happening in Ararat today? Oh, look, I'll just explain... Now, we're at the protest camp, and it's called the Dalgook Protest Camp. And Dalgook, D-A-L-G-O-O-K, is the name for our ancestor tree. And it is an old ancestor tree. And we're up here trying to stop Vic Rhodes from knocking them out, taking them out, um, as they've been doing to a lot of thousands of our trees. So, Sandra, has there been any consultation? Vic Roads are tearing this up, I, I imagine, for some kind of roadworks? Uh... We, we, we have had consultation. We've had uh, not a lot of consultation, mind you, but we have had uh, consultation. We've sat down and spoken to a number of people mm. um, a few months ago, uh, probably six months ago or more, might be 12 months, mm. and um, we haven't been able to really get any indication that this would they wouldn't take them out. We've actually shown them uh, a way of doing it that's cheaper than the way they're doing it now, um, you know, millions of dollars cheaper. There's that, they're right, so it's an unnecessary exercise. They're taking out our... Ancestor trees without yeah. any any careful consideration, and um, not only the trees, they're destroying the land around the trees. And I'm, in some cases, there are hills involved. These are in, sorry, yes. Auntie, can we're, we're running short on time? Can you tell me a little bit about the significance of these birthing trees? Now we're not calling them. Some people are calling them birthing trees. Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm calling them about. Trees of great significance. Um, the birthing part of it has not been clearly established okay. in terms of any um, scientific requirements. And we we have trees that have been modified by Aboriginal people um, God knows how long ago. Um, this tree we're at at the moment could be 500 years old or more. Mm. You know, they're quite old and they're hollow. They're beautiful trees. And um, as I said, there's no need for them to, to do it the way they're doing it. We've shown them how they can do it at a less cost-effective price to the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. And um, they're just being bloody-minded about it. 
So it's happening, they're going to remove them today, is that what you're saying? You're at the trees now. Yeah, can, that's what we've been told. Can people get down there and, you know, have you got a, a number of other supporters down there? Can people get down there and give you a hand in Ararat? Yeah, we'd love them to come out. It's not far out of Ararat. Where should they, they come to? They should come to, just but well, before they get to Ararat, the Ballarat, Ararat's fine. They can see there's a, there's a Ballarat and Ararat's fine. And um, address is on the War Facebook page. Yeah, it's on the Facebook page. There's details on the uh, Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, the War Facebook page. Arnie, Sandra, I've got to let you go because we're out of time and the next show is up. But thank you so much for calling in and I hope that uh, you get a stay of the removal of those trees so that people can continue to have them in their lives. Thank you so much for calling in this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. You've been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Oh, excellent. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.